reading from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because our faith, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy for the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, as Jack said earlier, my name is Hendre, and it really is a great privilege for me um, to be given this opportunity to preach to you guys from 1 Thessalonians. I'm looking forward to it, and um, yeah, I really have loved our time here at Unley so far. Jess and I um, have joined you guys at the start of the year, and it has been really great to get to know many of you and similarly, to have many of you slowly begin to get to know us, to get to know who we are, um, what we like, what we dislike, and to learn some of our peculiarities and quirks. Like a few weeks ago, sorry, um, seeing a tendency to embarrass ourselves by attempting things like rapping in church. Um, and I've, I thought, given the success of that and given the success of Hamilton, why not just wrap the sermon today? <laughs> um, luckily for you, I'll save that for next week maybe, um, but um, I thought there's a lot of you that probably still feel like you don't really know me too well. So as we start, I thought I'd share a little bit more about who I am. Carl was very strict with me about sticking to the time limit though, so I can't tell you my whole life story. So feel free to come grab me for a coffee and I can start with the Monday I was born and take you through to today. But um, Jemima will quickly help show us through a very quick photo reel of um, a quick overview of my life. So I was born in South Africa. And there was a pretty healthily chunky baby. And then I was the middle of three kids. Um, so that explains a lot of my sense of self-worth and feeling neglected and all that sort of stuff. Then when I was about seven, my family immigrated to the UK, and there's me on the left 
much too excited by snow that I almost looked possessed. Um, and then I grew up, got pimply, and yeah, anyway, let's move to the next one. And then we moved to Australia when I was about 16, where I stumbled upon an Aussie girl who was just as odd as I am. Um, we got married, and then here we are two years later. Um, cool. So, a very brief overview, and good that it was brief because they were pretty embarrassing. But hopefully, in that quick fly through, um, you would have seen one of the most significant factors of my childhood, which was this, these two international moves, which had a big impact on who I developed as to that, how I developed. Um, and I think I'm very thankful for all the opportunities I got from moving overseas, all the places I got to see. But one of the most significant things about moving cultures, about moving contexts, is that as you move into a new culture, you get to see both your own culture, but also the new one from an outsider's point of view. You get to see the good things and some of the more problematic aspects of each culture. And you also just get to see some things that are viewed as positives in one, suddenly not viewed the same in the next. And this was definitely true for me in moving from South Africa to the UK. Um, I love South Africa. Um, most of my extended family is still there, and I have great memories and love many parts of the culture. But as we moved to the UK, um, what South Africans are generally pretty loud, robustious, like talkative, and pretty like straightforward. They'll give you their opinion fairly accurately and directly. But in England, which is demure and polite and um, subversive, if anything, this was perceived as aggressive, as um, just noisy and a public disturbance. And so it was pretty soon that I realized not all aspects of my culture, my identity, were appreciated by the world that I now found myself in. And so if, as I met people and was unable to hide my accent at the time, and if they mentioned they had a South African friend, I would squirm, I would get nervous, get awkward, because I was afraid of what their true opinion of this person would be. Was this a positive or a negative experience? And I think, if we're honest, that's what many of our experiences are of being a Christian in today's world. That there are many times when being a Christian feels like an awkward thing to admit to. We are embarrassed by the behavior of some other believers. We feel embarrassed when certain aspects of our faith get brought to light because they're hard and awkward truths to explain to other believers, let alone to unbelievers. And so often, if we can, we choose to just pass as a normal person, if that's an option, to keep silent. And I think 2 Thessalonians as a book is a prime example of why we are so often tempted to be like that. 2 Thessalonians is a book which has many parts which I absolutely love and would gladly frame and hang up on our wall at home. But similarly, there are many parts that are strange and awkward and you'd probably rather keep secret and not discuss at the dinner table. But for me to be preaching from 2 Thessalonians this week, just glancing at all the easy, the comfortable, the nice and the encouraging bits, would be doing a disservice to this portion of scripture. So what I'd like to ask of you guys as we head into this three-week series is that you would embrace the awkwardness with me. 
that you would be willing to sit with the discomfort of some of these passages as we wrestle together about what they mean for us, both individually and as a church, and that hopefully we can see together how even these awkward, uncomfortable portions of God's word are still edifying to us, and we can stand behind them with confidence. So as we head into chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians this week, we will see three of these awkward aspects of our faith. And you'll see that in your handout as the outline of today's service. But before we dive into it properly, let me just quickly pray, and then I'll get into it. And dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being to gather here this morning. We thank you for your word and for the fact that all parts of it are useful and for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for guiding. We pray that you help us to not put our blinkers on and hide from certain portions of your scripture, but that we would embrace it all, trusting that you are a good and a loving God and that it is there for a reason. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we saw in the Bible reading this morning that Sally read to us, Paul is pretty clear in stating the context of this passage from the outset. We saw in verse 1, which will hopefully appear back up on the screen for you, that he introduces himself. He says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. But it is also worth stating the fairly obvious. This is two Thessalonians. And so obviously there was a letter prior to this. This is a subsequent letter, and some people suggest it's even as soon as six months after the first. Given that, it's understandable that many of the things covered in 2 Thessalonians have already been mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. But at the same time, Paul clearly deemed it worthy of writing a second letter. So why was that so quick within six months? Well, we see this in verse 4 of today's chapter being hinted at, where it says, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. This persecution, which the Thessalonian church was facing, was increasing. And they were facing challenges in their midst too, which we will see more about next week. But so Paul was writing to this church to encourage and comfort them in the midst of their circumstances. And this is the first of these awkward moments, these awkward aspects of our faith, the reality that God's people suffer. That idea can seem like a bit of a paradox for us in our human minds. How can the people of a loving, of a good, of a sovereign God, how can they suffer? How can they be persecuted? But that's exactly what we see is the situation of the Thessalonian church. And Paul, rather than seeming surprised by these circumstances, doesn't raise any noise of alarm or confusion, but speaks in confidence, trusting in God and encouraging these people. We will see three ways as we head through these awkward moments in which Paul does that, in which he seeks to encourage and comfort these people. And the first of those we see in verses 3 to 4, which is through thanksgiving and praise. So let's reread those verses together. So 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. We ought always to thank you, God. 
thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. We see here Paul praising the Thessalonians. In spite of the circumstances they are facing, which clearly are hard, their faith has not dwindled and they have not ceased to live out their faith, but rather we see that their faith has continued to grow. And not only has their faith grown, but we also see them growing more and more in love for one another. So we can imagine that they continued to meet together, continue to serve one another, even with this outside threat. What an amazing encouragement and comfort it would have been to this church, who was no doubt weary and tired, to have Paul encourage them about what he has seen and what he has heard of about them. I remember when I was young, every time we went to visit an old family friend or a distant relative, we'd have the same awkward conversation where they're all like, oh, you've grown so much. And it's just a rather odd thing to say to someone, really. Like, or it feels so, at least, because you're like, okay, I guess. Um, but being you, you don't really notice the growth day by day or month by month. And if, yeah, it just feels odd. But now that I'm all old and almost gray, and now the uncle to a little niece and nephew who are absolutely adorable, I have turned into that strange older relative who every time I see them, I'm like, ooh and ah, as they learn to like walk or talk or bark or moo. Um, and it's only ever been like two weeks since I saw them last. So it's a bit embarrassing. But I think it can be like that for us with our faith sometimes. But it is so easy for us to fail to see what God is doing in our lives. In the grind of the day-to-day life, of just keeping our heads down and moving on, it can be hard to see how God is growing us in our faith, how he is growing us to love others more and more. And so what Paul is doing here for the Thessalonian church is he is pulling them out of that day-to-day grind and encouraging them with what he has seen and heard about them. This is particularly true, I think, when we are doing it tough, where we just bury our head in what needs to get done, and we don't stop and pause. And what do we see about Paul? What happens for him as he sees and witnesses and hears about what is happening in this church? Paul praises God and gives thanks to him. It says, we ought always to thank God for you. Always. And this word ought, it's not ought as in like, I probably ought to eat healthier or ought to go for a run tomorrow. But this is Paul saying that he is compelled to, that he can't help but praise God and give thanks to God because of what's happening in the lives of the Thessalonian church. He can't help but praise God for his work in them. And what does this progress... Sorry, Paul wasn't surprised by the suffering and persecution in the Thessalonian church. He didn't find any awkwardness in that reality 
Jesus, our God, suffered himself, after all, to the point of death up on the cross. And he warned us that, for believers, the same persecution would be true. But rather than finding it awkward or like an uncomfortable paradox, Paul rejoices in the face of this suffering with full confidence in God, knowing that he is sovereign and all-powerful, and that he can work even through and despite those circumstances for the good of this people, to continue to grow them in faith and in love. I think sometimes, for us as believers, we get too in our heads and tangled up in ourselves that we think we're trying not to puff one another up or um, we don't want to give this person the praise rather than giving the glory to God, that in the end we just often end up doing neither. That we fail to encourage our brothers and sisters with what we see God doing in them and through them. How can we as a church be spurring on others with what we see God doing in them? particularly for those who are doing it tough and just hanging on. Both for those believers here in our community, in our midst, but also for those who are further afield in sometimes much more pressing circumstances. And how do we react as we look at other believers and see what God is doing in their lives? Are we compelled to praise and give thanks to our God. As we head into the next few verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, we see Paul turning to a source of encouragement that would be pretty much at the bottom of my list. Paul uses God's judgment as a source of comfort and hope for these people. The word judgment, the idea of judgment, is a pretty taboo thing in our society. And inevitably, that has also crept into the culture of the church. We are so scared of being seen as judgmental that we often fail to helpfully call one another out on sin. We are so scared of the topic of God's judgment on unbelievers being raised and even sometimes I think we are scared of God's judgment. It is an awkward truth that God will judge our friends, our family, our neighbors. All those who do not trust in him will face his judgment. The finality of his judgment and the extreme consequences of this is a divisive truth. And it can feel so uncomfortable to stand behind that. The fact that on that day, for all eternity, those who do not call upon the name of the Lord will be destined to hell. That feels like a very hard thing to find comfort and hope in. How can something which is so divisive be a source of comfort or even be good? But Paul, being Paul, is pretty frank and unapologetic about this, saying quite clearly in verses 8 and 9, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
This sadness of the fate which awaits those who do not put their faith in God is undeniable. And I think it is right for us to feel the awkwardness and the tension of that. But having said that, justice is good. God putting an end to suffering, to sin, to brokenness, to rebellion, it is a good thing. We know justice is good when we look at our world and the justice system. When a judge hands out a righteous verdict, that is a good thing. And this is what God is doing on that final day. God, in some ways, is giving those who have wanted nothing to do with him exactly what they've wanted by shutting them out from his presence. But the reality is that it's not just them, but all of us who are actually deserving of that punishment. We all disobey God. And it is exactly that justice, that punishment which we all ought to be shown, which makes the grace which we are shown instead that much more astounding. For the church in persecution in Thessalonica, this day meant an end to their suffering here on earth. It was a source of hope that these afflictions, these trials are only temporary. And it's a reminder that the victory is secure. And so despite the sadness that comes with that day, there is great relief and great rejoicing as many people are reunited with their Savior, not because of anything they've done, but only because of His grace. That's a glorious day. And so if there's someone here who doesn't know God personally, who doesn't feel like they fall in that camp of those who are justified, I just want to encourage you, despite what you've heard, despite the confronting nature of what we've just read and said, that there is hope and comfort to be found in that day of judgment. The promise of grace, the promise of mercy for all those who do accept Christ is an open promise. It is open to all of us. And it is only by accepting that that any of us are right with him. And so for us who do believe We need not feel awkward about standing behind that. But we can have confidence to trust in God's good and righteous judgment. To trust that the God who has been so incredibly gracious and merciful with us will do justice. And so we can find hope and comfort even in that day, knowing he is our good God. Finally, in the closing section of chapter 1, in verses 11 and 12, Paul turns to his final source of encouragement, to prayer. These verses say, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We have seen twice in the passage we have read so far this idea of being counted worthy of the kingdom of God or worthy of God's calling. 
And this can sound like a bit of a confusing concept, particularly given what we've just discussed. In the earlier occurrence of this, is, is Paul saying that because of the church's endurance, they've somehow earned their salvation, that because they endured, they are now worthy? And here in verse 11, is, he, is this a command saying we need to do enough good works so we are deemed worthy, so we remain worthy? We know that's not the case. Nobody is worthy of salvation in and of themselves. Rather, Paul's encouraging them that their persecution and their perseverance in that has proved their faith to be true, proved what God has done in them. And here in verse 11, he spells out this doctrine of grace, of nothing we contribute, nothing we add, very plainly. Look with me carefully at this verse. It says, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. It is God doing the action. And as we head on, it says that by his power, he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness. And by his power, that your every deed prompted by faith might come into fruition as well. And why is all this happening? Well, that's verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we constantly praying for our fellow believers that their lives might be overflowing with love and good deeds? And when we look at our lives, do we rightly attribute the good works that God has done in and through us as only possible through his power? Despite the minefield of awkward topics and moments in this opening chapter, Paul has somehow managed to pull off a letter of encouragement and comfort to a weary church facing a trying season. But we have to be honest with ourselves and admit that we are not in the same situation as the Thessalonians. As a whole, we do not face persecution for our faith. Yes, it could be said that it looks like the tides are turning and that maybe in time, some of us here We'll face the risk of losing employment, of maybe even going to jail for our faith. But even now, when that is not our reality, I think so many of us are often too quick to be startled into silence. That the awkwardness gets to us that we censor ourselves even though we are not being censored by anyone. I'm not saying we should be reckless and brazen and abrasive, but I think at the same time we ought not be so quick to just default to silence, to doubt God's faithfulness. We see in 2 Thessalonians Paul encouraging and comforting the church, spurring them on with full confidence that there is a hope 
worth enduring this suffering for. And even though we might not be in that situation right now, I think there is a truth for us in that. The gospel is good news. And the gospel is worth suffering for. And so for us, it is worth the risk of rejection. It is worth the risk of mocking or whatever else it might bring to stand up for and speak in grace and in love the truth of the gospel. To own our faith and all aspects of it proudly as our primary identity in all circumstances. And in doing so, we can have confidence that we serve this sovereign God who is powerful enough to work in us in all circumstances, despite whatever hardships we might face as a result, that we serve a God who will bring an end to all suffering that may come, and that we serve a God who will grant us the grace and peace to endure whatever that may bring. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom all of us have been given an opportunity to be restored to you. We thank you for your gift of grace and your work through your Spirit in our lives. God, we pray that you would help us to have confidence in you, that we would trust your goodness and faithfulness, that we would trust your provision and that we would not be ashamed of our faith or scared into silence, but that lovingly, graciously, and kindly we might speak the truth of your gospel, that we would be motivated by the reality of what is facing those who do not know you to hold out the the gospel of grace so that many more might join us as those who can find hope and comfort in you. Amen.